following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Good morning. Reuben um, said he was going to be away for a while, so he invited the best preachers of Auckland to come. They couldn't all make it, so he phoned me. Uh, it's nice to see uh, a bunch of friends, uh, old faces, as in familiar faces, not old, familiar faces, and a whole bunch of new ones. Uh, yeah, I lecture at uh, Laidlaw College. Um, don't hold that against me that I'm a lecturer um, in theology, and I'm associate pastor of Albany Baptist, just the other side of the golf course, actually, so very close, and we've had a long and um, close association with Shaw Community, so... Uh, it's nice to be here this morning, and I'm delighted to be preaching this morning on Psalm 19. If you do have a Bible, turn to it, and you can follow along as I speak. Uh, Psalm 19 is one of C.S. Lewis's favorite psalms, and C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, so this is doubly good. Lewis said, I take this psalm to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Most readers will remember its structure. Six verses about nature, five about the law, and four of personal prayer. Psalm 19 contains three voices and one main message, and I'm going to briefly use that as the outline for this talk today. Hopefully, oh yeah, there it is. So the voice of nature, the first six verses. Here we hear the inaudible voice of nature. Did you catch that? We hear the inaudible voice of nature. Of nature. That's a direct contradiction, is it not? But listen to this from the Psalms 19. Uh, we're asking the question of this psalm, what does nature tell us about God? And yes, that is a lowercase g on purpose, as you'll see in a minute. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Amen? Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. Hey? <laughs> what? They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The voice of nature, the so-called book of nature. And I just wanted to inflict upon you for the next few minutes some family photos. Why not? Um, you weren't with me, so we're just going to flick through some sort of um, photographs from holidays that we've had. Don't worry, you're not in it, Robin, don't worry, nothing embarrassing. This, this next picture comes from Tonga, this one. And in Tonga, don't know if you've been to Tonga, you know I've been to Tonga Tapu? No, there's, there's not a lot to do. Went to the information centre, they said, oh, there's five things to do. Okay, we'll do those this morning. Um, and one of them is to go to... To, to the blowholes, and it's, it's, well, it's not, but let's just say it's impressive. <laughs> this next one's Campbell's Bay, this next, uh, 
the, just the, the beauty that comes from around us. The next one, this was taken in um, Arizona. Uh, it had been snowing. I don't know what sort of plant that is, some sort of yucca or I don't know what that is, but look like an alien. Or, or this picture. This one's from Nepal. And in the distance there, somewhere is Mount Everest. And, and we managed, uh, while we were in Nepal, to go to this little tea house up a hill. They called it a hill. We'd call it a, a, a massive mountain. And in the distance, through the Himalayas, this peak above all. It's just magnificent, just incredible. Well, this next one, this is Arches National Park. I don't know, anyone been to Arches National Park? It's just, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's just these, these, these structures, these, these arches that are there. And, and it's just like some foreign landscape. It's just, it's... It's quite beautiful in a, in a weird, arid type of way. This one probably needs no introduction. This next slide, the Grand Canyon. We were fortunate enough to, to have a visit there, and, and it's huge. Um, lots of places, um, I, th- well, I don't know, I think I'm a realist, not a pessimist, but lots of places you go to, they're like, well, that's a bit disappointing. <laughs> Look better in the pictures. Not the Grand Canyon. It's huge. And you just sit there, and, and you're tiny. You're just get the sense of smallness and just, just the grandeur of what God has created, even this, this massive rift through the valley. It's just, just phenomenal. This one probably needs no introduction either, Niagara Falls. Uh, we, uh, we got to Niagara uh, reasonably late in the day. We're on the American side. We checked into our hotel. We could sort of see the falls from our hotel. We walked down and had a look and weren't impressed, to be fair. Um, yeah, wrong side. Yeah. Yeah, we're like, yeah, it's bigger than the Hooker Falls, but um, mm. and then in the morning we packed up and drove across the bridge, which takes you across the border into Canada, and you look from the Canadian side, ah, ha ha, wow, you see that Horseshoe Falls, it's like, oh wow, that is simply spectacular, that is awesome. Or, or this next one, this was just taken in the car park, um, just up the road, don't have to go across the world to see the beauty of what God has created. Or this next one, Takapuna. Or, or the next one, Long Bay, even closer to home. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, this next one, Monument Valley, so further up from Arches. And again, this you may have seen this on cowboy movies. It's this iconic sort of scene. And, and you're driving along this long, straight road with this, and you're just expecting to see cowboys come out of the, where are they? You know, what's happening here? Uh, this next one, no idea. I didn't take that. But that's pretty cool, isn't it? Wish I could take something like that. Uh, talk about the vastness of the Grand Canyon and our smallness. Uh, I do like to look at stars in the sky when you're outside the city where there's less light pollution. I remember with my kids, we were in India. I was, I was lecturing there for a couple of months. And we went up the top of the building because it's all got these lovely flat roofs. And we were looking at the, the, the sky. And, and of course, different part of the world, so slightly different constellation, but the same sky the same moon, the same creator. It was just spectacular. It was just, just awesome, getting lost in what God has created. I'm not an overly sentimental person. I don't write much poetry. I read even less. But even I like nature. Are you with me? Yeah. Appreciating, especially here in God's own, as we call it, what God has created uh, this last one, I, I think, is there one more? Uh, yeah, that was, that was Tonga. And um, uh, one of the things that wasn't on their list of things to do, but it should have been at the top, is if you get there in the right season, you've got the whale migration going past. And so you can't see it in that picture. Well, not now the sun's out. Uh, 
But there is somewhere at the back, there's, there's whales going along. And it was just spectacular. And we're in this um, ramshackle sort of barn of a, well, I couldn't call it a cafe, but they did have something like coffee. Um, it was just a know-nothing place, and you've just got one of the, the best scenes in the world. You know, like, like anywhere else, there'd just be massive infrastructure put in. Anyway, the Psalm 19, the sun rises at one end of the heavens, it makes its circuit to the other, nothing is deprived of its warmth. Can you feel that? Nothing's deprived of its warmth. This last line of verse 6 is important. It emphasizes that nothing is hidden from the sun's rays. Everything is included. So, here in Psalm 19, the first part, creation cries out in inarticulate speech of the glory of God. Yet it does so without words, or rather, without human language. Trees don't speak. You know that. Rocks don't speak. Water doesn't speak. Not human language. Not French, not German, not Greek, Hebrew, not even English. And yet it does talk. It transcends language. The message of nature is present everywhere. Would you agree? And God's fingerprints are across it all. Would you agree? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Now, if we were a smaller group, if we were a a, a seminar or workshop, I would ask this next question, but you can just answer it in your own head. So what do you learn about God from nature? If it speaks and it witnesses to God and it's grandiose, what does it say to you about God? I wonder what's going through your mind other than what you're going to have for lunch in a minute, but what does it tell you about God? What does sunsets tell you about God? What does blowholes in Tonga tell you about God? What does the Grand Canyon tell you about God? I put up there on those slides things like, things others have said, well, design demands a designer, so there must be some intelligent design. Life comes from life, and so it demands a supernatural creator. Moral law means there must be a moral lawgiver. Free will exists. We're not just biologically determined. Where does that come from? Human reasoning exists, so there must be some supernatural intelligence. Any, yep, mm mm-hmm. Were you thinking of any of those things? (laughs) Maybe, but not in those words. Uh, There's a couple of other slides. Um, I'm not sure what they tell us. I'm not sure this is God speaking. You can hardly see that, but if you've done the walk from... Um, what is it, Campbell's Bay round to Mairangi Bay, there's this rock and someone's painted it and it just looks like someone praying. Any of you seen that? Anyone done that walk? Yeah, yeah, a clever person. The next one, we were in the Redwoods and there was this Trinity tree. It splits into three and they've called it the Trinity tree. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, a lot of my academic work is around the Trinity and I've never used trees to establish that, but there you go. This next slide is also part of nature. Um, it's a bit hard to see, but when I do this in workshops and smaller groups, uh, I often show a video at this point, but my wife, sorry, my spiritual advisor, said I wasn't allowed to show that today. So I'll show a video of a leopard taking down a warthog, and they scream like billio. And of course, they take them through the throat. Or a pride of lions taking down a baby elephant and eating it, or just parts of it, the parts they like. What does nature tell you about God? 
or volcanoes erupting and demolishing entire villages, or hurricanes destroying entire cities. What does nature tell you about God? You see, I'm getting a bit more pointed. Natural theology is what we call a knowledge of God derived from nature and nothing else. Without the Bible, without Christ, without Israel and God's working through here in the Old Testament, Natural theology is what we can know about God. And if you ask me, what we know is very, very little. If I ask you a more specific question, a Christian question, I wonder how you'd answer this. What do we learn about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from nature? For my part, nothing. No amount of navel-gazing at dolphins has ever taught me there's an eternal father of an eternal son. What do we know about Jesus Christ from nature? I could hug a tree for hours and days on end, and it won't reveal that the son is the eternally begotten one from the father. What do we know about the Holy Spirit sent by the risen and ascended Jesus to indwell us and fill us and make us like him? What do we know of the Holy Spirit from nature alone? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And again, in smaller groups, you might want to debate that. I'm up for it, but we can't do that in a big group like this. From nature, unaided by any special revelation, we learn almost nothing of who he is. We might learn there's a first principle, there's an intelligence, there's an artificer, someone who who creates, sure. We learn God is a thing or an it or a person or something, But what else? Not much. That's why I used lowercase g, God, an undefined, ambiguous thing is probably behind what we see. And this is what the psalmist does, actually. When in these verses, the psalmist talks about God, he uses the Hebrew El, E-L, El. Now, El is the most bland, ambiguous word for God. It's the equivalent of the English God. (laughs) Look up the Oxford English Dictionary, God, and you won't find a Christian description. You won't find a biblical description. You will find a philosophical, metaphysical description. A God or gods are, and they'll give a, a, a category. They'll give a genus, a genus, a principal taxonomic category that ranks above species, specifying a class of things which have common characteristics and which can be divided into subordinate kinds. I don't get that in my Bible, but I think many people in churches, when we say the word God, are thinking that. They're thinking a preconceived, pre-boxed, pre-packaged God, and when they read Scripture, they've got to fit that into their already defined notion. But that's as specific as me referring to my wife as human. My human is kind. My human is funny. My human has a good sense of humor. What? It's remote, it's clinical, it's ambiguous. Many humans are kind, many humans are patient, many humans are funny. What does this tell you about Odell, my wife? From nature, we can derive at best there's a God, lowercase, G-O-D, or something or someone. But beyond that, I find it hard to find anything. Is this God kind or horrid? Is it the God of the sunrises or the God of the savage lions? 
Is this God beautiful or callous? Is this the God of the beautiful birds or the cannibalistic chimpanzees? How would we know? In 1974, Annie Dillard wrote this weird, delightful, quirky book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Anyone read it? That's about the normal response. Won a Pulitzer Prize. I just want to read you a little bit of it. I love this book. It's so unusual. She says, I reel in confusion. I don't understand what I see. With the naked eye, I can see two million light years into the Andromeda galaxy. Often I slop some creek water in a jar. And when I get home, I dump it in a white china bowl. After the silt settles and I return and I see tracings of minute snails on the bottom, a planarian or two winding round the rim of the water, roundworms shimmying frantically. Finally, when my eyes have adjusted to these dimensions, I see amoeba. At first, the amoeba looked like Musci volantes, who knows what that is, those curled moving spots you seem to see in your eyes when you stare at a distant wall. Then I see the amoeba as drops of water congealed, bluish, translucent, like chips of sky in a bowl. At length, I choose one individual and give myself over to its idea of an evening. <laughs> That's funny, you should know. I see it dribble a grainy foot before it on its wet, unfathomable way. Do its unedited sense of impressions include the fierce focus of my eyes? Shall I take it outside and show it Andromeda and blow its little endoplasm? Maybe I should get a tropical aquarium with motorized bubblers and lights and keep this one for a pet. Yes, it would tell its fissioned descendants, the universe is two feet by five, and if you listen closely, you can hear the buzzing music of the spheres. Wish I could write like that. She won a Pulitzer Prize. Now, if that was too subtle for some of you, I am saying that without any other voice but nature, we are like amoeba before Andromeda. Natural theology is a shallow and elusive voice that often tells us untruths. Creation and the sun especially act as universal witnesses to God's glory, to His power, yes, but they are not sufficient witnesses in themselves. General revelation is never enough. Human invented religion is never enough. Merely humanistic ideas of an ultimate being are never enough. The speech is not articulate, and it's dependent upon us to interpret. And we are terrible interpreters. We have here the theological equivalent to the Heisenberg principle in science, which basically states, whatever you go looking for in an experiment, you will normally find. I want a loving God. So I look at sunsets and dolphins and butterflies. And I ignore the rest. Nature, red in tooth and glow. No, David Attenborough, stay, stay on that side of the. And here the psalm changes dramatically. Verses 7 to 11 add this missing element, the Torah of God, the, the law of God. 
Creation is a mute witness to a God, yes, and now Yahweh speaks. So here we have the voice of the law in verses 7 to 11. And for us, this seems an incredibly bumpy transition. If you just read Psalm 19, nature, 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 the law of God is. You're like, what happened here? But to the psalmist, there's no bump, there's no weird transition Because we have to ask ourselves, who's looking at nature? Who's talking about the sun? Who's talking about sunsets? Who's talking about what they see? It's a believer. It's a worshiper. It's a member of the covenant community of God. It's one to whom God has spoken. God has spoken. He created a people. He covenanted with them and he revealed himself to them and through them to us. And so now... We know who's looking at nature. We can discern what they see. The psalm goes on, 7 to 9, and it describes the law, the Torah, what we would call now the Bible. And it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are clear. The decrees of the Lord are true. And all of them are righteous. And what does this law or this voice of God do? It revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It brings joy to the heart and gives insight to life. The psalmist then concludes with a summary, verses 10 and 11. The law of the Lord is more precious than gold, much more than pure gold, sweeter than honey from honey from the honeycomb. The Torah, the law, the word of God gives instruction. It gives direction. Here it's specifically the law which God has given to Israel, his covenant people. And so now the psalmist doesn't talk about God, doesn't talk about El, he talks about Yahweh. He talks about the one true God who has revealed his name to us. Who shall I say has sent me? Remember that story? You tell them I am has sent you. That's not very clear. (laughs) I am who I am, I'll be who I'll be. And as Israel progresses in their relationship with God, God gives them more of himself. God gives them more revelation. God gives them his name. And it's here that the true teaching of the Psalms revealed. Without the voice of the law, without Yahweh speaking, without God interpreting what we see and what we hear and what we feel, we would be lost. I think the second half of the psalm is like those audio guides. You know when you go on holiday and you go to attractions, you get those audio guides. More holiday snaps coming up. <laughs> we went to Alcatraz as a family. Anyone? Alcatraz? Man, you've got to book a long way ahead, don't you? So we went to Alcatraz and we paid the extra whatever it was to get the audio guide, and I'm so pleased we did. Because we're walking around Alcatraz, this prison on this island. Um, I was also at the Alamo. Uh, uh, it's an unusual place. Um, and I got the audio guide. And we're walking around. It's really funny because you're seeing buildings and you're seeing stuff. And as you walk around, you don't know what it means. You don't know any of its history. I know this was a prison. I know there were some famous prisoners here, but I don't know much more about it. And as you walk around, there's groups of people who are too tight to pay for the audio guide, which is normally me, but this time we did. And, and they stop, but they, oh, I wonder what that is. And someone will come up with an interpretation. Oh, yeah, look, I think that's sort of the... And I got the audio guide, it's like, no, 
No, not even close. No, that's not. You come to a cell, it's just another cell. There's lots of cells. It's a prison after all. You come to a cell, you stand in front of it. Bed, basin, yeah. Onto the, oh, wait a minute. This is Al Capone's cell. This Al, Al Capone was here, you know. You just don't know what you're looking at. I don't know much about American history in terms of the Alamo. I just know, remember the Alamo? Well, it turns out they lost. Um, yeah, a few, a few people laughing. Um, remember it so we don't lose again. Oh, that's interesting. And so, yeah, you've got the audio guide and you're looking at a hunk of dirt. There's like nothing really interesting about that hunk of dirt. Oh, this is the place. Fascinating. Because we've got experts. When we were at Alcatraz, as you come out, I don't know if the, you, this was like it when you were there, but there was this old guy signing autographs. And he was a prisoner in Alcatraz. He was the, one of their last prisoners. And so our kids were really quite young, so they, they got a little cartoon, you know, book of the escape from Alcatraz, and he wasn't the one that escaped, but he was a prisoner, gone to sign it. Um, my daughter, she was very really young at the time, both of them, my son and daughter, said, and what were you in for? <laughs> and he politely, thankfully, said, you don't want to know. <laughs> but I'm a different man now. An eyewitness. And so they asked him, what was it like? And again, he was, he'd obviously been trained. Don't be too honest, mate. Not with kids. And he said, it was awful. It was awful. And then he just gave a little bit of detail, but not enough to keep them awake at night. Without the interpreter, without the audio guide, I'm just looking at stuff. Or I'm not even looking at it. I'm just walking straight past it. I didn't even notice that. I didn't know the significance of that. I see this building. I wouldn't have gone into, into the Alamo, just another Spanish-looking building. It's the Alamo. And you walk in, there's this history, and this is how the law of God functions with nature. This is what the psalm is doing. If you let God interpret what nature is, if you let God interpret how he's seen through nature, then it does speak of his glory. It does speak of his goodness. It does speak of his wild side for sure. That's how it works. What we have in the first half of Psalm 19 isn't a natural theology at all. It's a theology of nature. That's a very different thing. Natural theology, what can I know about God if I don't listen to anything he says, I just look at what he's made? And I'm saying again, you can know almost nothing. You get a God idea. That won't save you. A God idea won't save you. There is no other name under heaven on earth by which you shall be saved other than the name. That wasn't a trick question. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We need to know about him and he has revealed himself. In the second half of Psalm 19, these verses 7 to 11, when the Jews read this, they see it as a direct theological account of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And this was really surprising to me because I didn't see that in my first reading. How is this a reading of Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And they go line by line. What did Eve in the garden, and Adam, but they talk about Eve here, what did Eve want when she ate off that tree? She wanted wisdom. She wanted life. She ultimately wanted to be like God. And the Jews go to this part of the psalm, and they say, what does the law of Yahweh give us? Life, wisdom, righteousness, holiness, God-likeness. They see here the reversal of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the reversal of the fall. 
Eve decided to take wisdom for herself. She decided to interpret herself. Here, the psalmist says, God will give you wisdom freely if you want it. Where? In his word. Here. God will give you righteousness and holiness if you want it. Where? Through the word. God will make you like himself in a holy way, in a good way, in a righteous way. We will become God-like. Now, go forward many thousand years. We don't use that language a lot. We use the language of Christ-like. We're becoming conformed to the image of Christ. This is a deliberate reversal of the fall from Genesis 3. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. Uh, the guy at the PowerPoint, I'm just skipping over a bit just for your benefit. So <laughs> you're doing a fantastic job. And that is the message this morning, that we are those who find the voice of the triune God sweeter than honey. His word is on our lips, his spirit is in our hearts, his work is on our mind, because the psalmist says, what does he say about the Torah? What does he say about the, the law? It is perfect. It is trustworthy. It is right. It is clear. It is true. It is righteous. And he's not just talking about the Bible. He's not just talking about the words of the Lord. He's talking about the study of the word. This is Psalm 119 now. Meditate on the word. Tie it around your foreheads. Remember it day and night. And we do that, don't we, as Christians? This is where we turn first. We delight to hear the voice of the Lord. Christians throughout the ages can't read the Psalms without also thinking about Jesus Christ. And here, most especially, we understand that creation and our view of it has to be controlled by Christ. Our view of God, the Creator, must be strictly determined by who He has revealed Himself to be, not who we think He is from looking at trees and dolphins and creation. And who has God most fully revealed himself to be? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one being, three persons. Athanasius, an early church father, said that it is better to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name God from his works alone and call him unoriginate. I've never heard anyone pray, dear unoriginate, give us today our daily bread, because it's a function. We're taught to pray, dear Father, our Father, our Father. I reckon those two words are the gospel, our Father. Remember what occasioned this? The disciples, I don't know how to pray, you ask them how to pray. I don't want to ask them, it's silly, I'm a Jew, Jews should know how to pray. Well, someone's going to ask them, okay, I'll ask them. Uh, how do we pray? How do you pray? For 2,000 years I've been telling you, you nut jobs, how to pray, and you're asking me now how to pray? I mean, they're not asking the dynamics of prayer. They're not asking about the posture. They're not asking about how they, they do it technique-wise. What they're asking is what? Who do we pray to? Jesus, you got 10 fingers and 10 toes, but somehow you speak like God, you look like God, you act like God, you resemble God, even though he hasn't got any hands no toes and no feet. Who do we pray to? Do we pray to God, El? Do we pray to God? Or do we pray to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament? Or do we pray to you? 
And what does Jesus say? This is how you should pray, our Father. But Jesus has revealed to them for two, two and a half years that he's not their father. He's not your father. He's not my father. Correct? He's only the father of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal father of the eternal son. That's why the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus repeatedly. Because he's claiming oneness with God. He's claiming the divine identity. He's claiming equality with Yahweh. He's claiming he's the one that created everything. And he says to them, you should pray our father. And they're like, how can we pray our father when he's your father unless we were you? We can't be you. So what's the next best option? We have to be in you. We have to be attached to you. We have to be united to you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ so that united with Christ, his father becomes our father. The creator is no longer unnamed. The creator is no longer ambiguous. The creator is no longer some metaphysical Oxford English dictionary God. I don't care about that God. I don't care about that stuff. I don't know why you should either. This is far more personal, intensely relational. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one true God is the creator and speaks about his creation and puts his fingerprints over it. And so this third voice of the worship uh, uh, we hear in Scripture is the voice of the worship of the last two verses. Here the psalmist moves in a climactic fashion from macrocosm to microcosm, from the universe and its glory to the individual in humility before God. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. One theologian tweeted his way through the Psalms, and when he got to Psalm 19, this is what he put. Psalm 19, what the law says, the stars say too. Nature and Torah rhyme. Oh, let my heart rhyme with them too. It's quite a good summary. And so back to my question, what do we learn of God from creation? What do we learn of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from creation? Well, if we read with the Christian tradition, we see that the sun in the sky plays the same role in this psalm as the Son of God does in creation. God the Son and God the Father are in this psalm after all, but only for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Because for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, well, we see and hear the triune God everywhere. As Karl Barth once wrote, God may speak to us through Russian communism, a flute concerto, a blossoming shrub, or a dead dog. We do well to listen to him if he really does. Creation is alive to the voice and presence of the triune God. The doctrine of creation leaves nature full of manifestations which show his presence and created energies which serve him. Just a a quick run through just some of the Psalms. The light is his garment, the thing we partially see him through, Psalm 104. The thunder can act as his voice, Psalm 29. He dwells in the thundercloud, Psalm 18. The eruption of a volcano comes in answer to his touch, Psalm 104. 
He makes winds his messengers and flames his servants. He rides upon cherubim and commands an army of angels. When we have the audio guide, when we have Christ and Scripture, only then does creation become revelatory of who God is. So friends, hear the voice of nature, follow the voice of God, and lift up your own voice in praise of our Creator, Father and Saviour, our Rock and our Redeemer. And as it's spring, although you've got a picnic next week, so that's good, actually enjoy creation. Don't talk about it, enjoy it. And as you do that with your non-Christian friends and family and colleagues, be conduits of God's voice to them. See that sunset? This is what it means. See that rainbow? This is what it means. See that? This is what it means. Even those darker aspects, those more violent aspects. God is not to be trifled with. God's not a genie. God's not Tiddles. Tiddles was the name of our household cat. Toothless, silly little thing. What does Lewis compare God to in his allegory in, in Narnia? A lion. And as the little kids get to know who this Aslan is, the beavers let it slip that Aslan is a lion. And little Lucy, can you remember? A lion. Is he, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver looks at her, safe, safe. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. Enjoy the book of nature as you read it through the book of the law. God bless you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.